everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. Uh, this is the first time we've recorded when the show has been live. So if you are a new listener, welcome. If you've listened to our past several episodes, thank you for doing that. Uh, and it's awesome to be with you here today. And with me, as always, is my fantastic co-host, Scott. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Hey, it's Scott Nixon from Cloud Mechanics. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. I guess I should say my employer as uh, Chef Software. Yeah, there um, you go. Yeah, Scott, where are you located geographically again? I'm in uh, Central Oregon. So Central yeah. Oregon must be pretty hot right now. Yeah, it was a little warm today, but uh, believe it or not, in a couple like two days, it's going to be like like a high of like I don't know, like sixty something. So oh, we're, okay. we're, we're we're lucking out. So at least for a couple of days. So yeah, awesome. Have you thought about building iOS apps? We have a podcast that talks about the iOS development community, Swift, and all of the things that are involved in that. You can go find it at ifreakshow.com. That's I-P-H-R-E-A-K-S show.com. Yeah, I just realized all of our regular hosts are in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So we can almost call us the Pacific Northwest DevOps show, but... Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're here for the whole world as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've place. got... Yeah, we've got an, an interesting topic this week that came out of a conversation last week. And the topic for this week is disaster recovery. Uh, how does your infrastructure recover? How do you recover from when the unimaginable becomes imaginable and becomes reality and actually happens? Yeah. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Yep. Have you tested the plan? All of those things, right? It reminds me of when I, I, I lived in California as a kid and the... Uh, paper uh, posters and stuff we'd see around our school or TV commercials like where are you prepared for when the big earthquake strikes so I mean and an earthquake is an example of something that could prompt a disaster recovery scenario definitely definitely I imagine most people are probably underprepared I know I know we don't have anything for you know like a like a go bag or anything like mm -hmm. that so I do have like a first aid kit in my car but like nothing super extensive so. well, that's something all right, so uh, let's start yeah. off. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, let's start off with a question like we usually do. Uh, what is disaster recovery? And I find disaster recovery, I actually found this on the Google Cloud Guide Disaster Recovery. It's a subset of business continuity planning. Mm. Uh, business continuity is how does the business continue to function uh, in the event of a disaster and then the disaster recovery is how does I mean, usually it applies more to how does your it infrastructure recover when the when something really bad happens yeah yeah so i you know i I've, I've had i have direct experience over the years and as i suspect you might as well with mm -hmm. helping and taking part in like um what we always called BCDR, business continuity disaster recovery plans, and then kind of executing on them. Uh, and so this is something that uh, I've been definitely been involved with. And the disaster recovery stuff is definitely like, I mean, can you, you know, it's so key, like technology systems are so key to the way every modern business runs, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, if you're, even a retail shop, you know, you, you probably still need to make sure that if your credit card machines go down, you can take cash. And if you're, you know, a big ticket item place, you probably need to still be able to have make imprints of cards and all those types of things. So that's the kind of stuff that we're brass tax type things we're thinking about here is, 
you know, um, and obviously we're, I think we're thinking a little more towards uh, websites and, Mm -hmm. you know, web applications in general and not necessarily internal IT stuff, but uh, that's going to inform a lot of my experience too, because that's the way where I've come from. So. Yeah, I find uh, when I bring up the topic of disaster recovery with a more technical, well, a semi-technical to a technical audience, uh, the question comes up sometimes, well, my infrastructure is HA, it's highly available. Does that mean, uh, or does that count as a disaster recovery plan? And I think it certainly is part of one, but no, disaster recovery is much more than that. Uh, It involves considering, you know, the geographic locations. If you have an HA setup, but it's in the same region, and that region gets hit by a major earthquake or a hurricane or whatever have you. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's not going to work. So, mm. yeah, there's two things I found when I was researching for this show that you often need to define when you start planning for disaster recovery for your IT infrastructure. And the first is the recovery time objective or the RTO. Uh, This is the maximum acceptable length of time that your application can be offline. And usually this is part of a larger service level agreement. If you're a service provider, you have a service level agreement that says, we will not have an outage. We will take these steps if we have an outage that goes this long, uh, but you, you should expect restoration of service by this time. And then the other one is RPO or recovery point objective. This is the maximum acceptable length of time during which data might be lost from your application due to a major incident. So let's say someone's uh, churning your data request to your API, but your database is down. And for some reason, it's not throwing an error to the API. uh, That data won't be getting into the database. Or if they have to, I've had to do this uh, in a real situation. We had something go wrong with a deployment that involved a migration and we had to roll it back but because it involved a database migration we also had to spin up a new copy of the database uh, from a copy that we had taken right before we did the migration so there was about two hours of data data loss in that case yeah and, and i mean in that case in particular when you're doing a restore you have to, you really need to understand how long is that restore going to take i mean it can definitely depending right. on size it could be that entire 2 hours is just restore time so so um and it's funny because you know it's you know i think that's one of the one of the most critical things when you're talking about application especially if your application is most of the value of what you're doing is stored in a database is to be regularly restoring your database to make sure and and having some reliable check or system that allows you to validate once you've made the restore okay i can restore this to a new instance then like, how do I like go through and verify what's in there? I mean, it could be as simple as counting the number of rows in each table or something like that, comparing that to production at some point in time, right? Or, it, you know, you could have something that's way more sophisticated. Um, but yeah, I think that's a databases is probably one of the most critical things. I mean, obviously it very much depends on your business, but you know, if you're storing, you know, if most of your business is photos, then it's really important that you don't lose, you know, your all those assets in your block storage so right you have to know what your users find the most value in and that's often the thing you need to preserve now it might not be i mean a user comes to you 
Flickr is what comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And they say, I have my photos. I want my photos to always be here. Or if Flickr goes offline, I want my photos to come back. And they're probably not thinking that they want a database or back database or that they want an object store, which uh, would be my first inclination to use for things like picture storage. But the, the value is in the pictures themselves. So mm -hmm. you have to take that value to your user and figure out what parts of your applications are critical or most critical to have come up first in the event of an outage. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, essentially the the recovery point objective that you're, that you described and you're like, what is the, you know, like, and so the, the, each of those things could be different. You know, it could be that, you know, the, the goal first is to get the database back up and then maybe you have, maybe you have some system that's accepting requests th through an API, but it's essentially just caching each, each request. And so they can be processed when the database is back up. And so those are all things that are kind of independent that, uh, that you maybe could have individual defined objectives for each. Cool. And when it comes to, once you have your RTO and your RPO and you know, basic plan of what objectives are, are involved in each of them, uh, when it comes to software, there's a couple of things you need to do to prepare your software for disaster recovery. And the first one uh, is verifying you can install the software. I, yeah, I've worked at lots of places where we had a piece of software, it was running, but the person who had installed it or deployed it had left, you know, five, six years beforehand. And we had no idea how to, if that server went offline, how to make that software run again. Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up doing some, I spent a few weeks doing uh, what I called uh, infrastructure forensics, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out what was on it, what the dependencies were, how it was set up, you know, how, how to replicate it. And it takes a lot of time to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something you want to be doing when an emergency is happening happening and the adrenaline's yeah. going and everything else. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's funny, right? If you're, if you're in the open source world, I, I've had this issue where somebody played fast and loose with a library, a dependency library I was using. And um, all of a sudden the one I've, one I had pegged in my requirements file was no longer available. And so then I had to go back to this public repo and um, like figure out exactly which version was it was and then check out that individual library at a time. And what I ended up eventually doing was going, oh yeah, every time I'm gonna depend on something that I think is some kind of shady, like d definitely, I wouldn't say shady, I was <laughs> coming up with a word for uh, community maintained that is very lightly maintained. Um, and and just make I just made a copy and make sure I had my own own version of the repo in case somebody decided to delete it and rename or whatever you know sometimes people will just straight delete accounts I'm trying to think of, there was somebody who really famously a number of years ago just deleted their like uh, account and deleted all kinds of crap so yeah there was one I think it was the Node package manager someone. I think it was called shift left. No, not shift left. It was something to do with the left. Uh, and uh, they pulled that package from the NPM repo and, or NPM package listing uh, and it broke the internet. 
mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people depended on it and didn't have a local version of it. And it, it, it caused a, a lot, way more ruckus than you'd expect from a, oh, you yeah. know, an open, a per, single person maintained open source project. Uh, but it absolutely did. Yeah, no, I could see how that could be a huge issue. So if all of a sudden my database library was not available, mm-hmm. I would just like not know what to do. Obviously, maybe hopefully you have an application that's, that can stay running right. uh, without needing to pull it. But yeah, so uh, yeah, so it, the, um, you know, I, it, yeah, definitely it's all across the stack, right? What are, you know, make sure you have instructions, be able to fully rebuild it, whether you have a script or you have to do it manually, um, doing the restore. Um, I, you know, one of the challenges I have personally right now is, is um, I'm wanting to move uh, S3 content from one account, AWS account to another AWS Um. account. And I don't have really clear permissions. And so I've got to figure out how, like, I've got to go and do the research and figure out all the permissions of each folders and stuff like that and make sure whenever I move them over that that stuff gets transferred over. And that's not even a, like, that's just a migration thing, not even a disaster recovery thing. Um, you, I just don't want to all of a sudden expose a bunch of stuff that's, it's not even customer data, thankfully. It's just purely like paid products versus non-paid products. So. Right. And that transitions us nicely to talking about uh, security settings in a disaster recovery plan. So it's really easy for security settings to drift when you've got something like security group dependent on security group dependent on security group. Sorry, a squirrel just literally just (laughs) ran by my window and distracted me for a second there. But when you've got complex security requirements, complex ACL lists and such, you need a way, one, to have captured those uh, because if their region goes down for your cloud provider, you may not be able to uh, access the security group or other configurations like that. And it's best to make sure to spin up, I think, a develop or a disaster recovery environment and making sure that people who can log into it can. I mean, the point of disaster recovery plans are for work to continue, uh, work to be as, to have the disaster rollover be as un intrusive as possible. And for people to do work, they need to have the uh, permissions that they need in order to do that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, you know, if it's your core application, you know, you need to make sure that's probably up first and then you can work on other things. And as far as like, it's funny cause I've never really tackled the ACL thing in a, in a significant way. If you're using like a traditional backup software, like I'm trying to think of Veritas, some back, like a Veritas backup software. The Veritas stuff is going to back up ACLs and do all of that stuff for you. Now, whenever it comes to, like I said, the cloud and S3, um, I've not necessarily addressed that problem. But, uh, you know, this is definitely something that's a major concern. And even I have not thought about very deeply. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, also making sure the disaster recovery environment matches your compliance requirements. If you're on mm-hmm. GovCloud, you're probably going to want your disaster recovery environment to be of cloud too, mm-hmm. uh, depending on on what your requirements are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, cloud storage as a part of your daily backup routines. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because obviously we want to automate all things, but at some level, you have to have some kind of checklist where you have a human look at things and verify it. Now, I, I don't know if you, it's kind of definitely 
determined by your organization, but I would still have somebody manually check that there are backups happening maybe at least once a week or once a month, you know? And uh, so I think that's a really, you know, in addition to making sure you have your backups, but have some kind of physical verification that those backups are happening. Cause I, as I've shared in the past, I definitely have had that bite me in the butt, like mostly just cause I just went multiple months without backups. I definitely have had that happen as well. I mean, even when you have the, you have set up to automatically take snapshots uh, every so often, it's very easy, I think, for that to break and you to not notice. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to make sure you have proper alerting as well. Yeah. Uh, if you uh, tend to take a backup and that backup fails, you are going to want to know about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it, and, and a lot of times like with backups, you have to think, you know, I, you know, obviously you know, if you're a developer and you've not thought much about like, how do you restore a database? Well, like a lot of times if it, you know, your daily backups, what that's, that's giving you that point in time when that database was run. And most likely you're doing trans, you're, you know, your database is generating transaction logs and you would also want to back those up because the, how recent your last transaction log was defines um, how it's up to what point you can restore uh, your database. And so that, that's a, it's a critical part of understanding your restore processes is to understand all of the pieces involved. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And another thing under security is uh, secrets management. That's, that would be worth an entire episode uh, <laughs> just on secrets management. But if your disaster recovery environment, your new environment cannot access your secret stores, uh, you're, you're between a rock and a hard place, uh, basically, depending on how you have those secret stores configured. Well, and, and I mean, I know with, with things like HashiCorp's vault, you know, I mean, you are setting up your own cluster of servers that basically store these secrets. And so you yeah. have to think about how you then also recover that over as well. And, you know, that's probably involves some data replication between sites and all kinds of good things like that. So. Yep. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I have people email me all the time with a quick question. So I've started answering a lot of those questions on the DevRev. You can find it at thedevrev.com and I try every day to answer a question that people have about programming, programming careers, and things like that. You can either go to devchat.tv and click the send voicemail button on the side and leave me a voicemail that I'll play on the show. Or you can just email me, chuck at devchat.tv with your question and I'll answer it. And then go to thedevrev.com and check out the videos and audio that I post there when I have a new show up. So uh, earlier in our episodes, we talked a little bit about cloud agnostic setups. And the, a lot of the major clouds, AWS certainly does, Azure does, Google Cloud does, uh, they have some built-in tools for disaster recovery. And we'll talk a little more about some of them later. But if you, if you are in a position where you want to say, okay, if the entirety of AWS goes offline for some reason, I want to be able to fail over to something in Azure or in Google Cloud, just to increase my resilience. I don't want to be dependent on one particular vendor. Well, in order to do that, you need to use tools that are cloud and platform agnostic. And I thought maybe we could go through a few things that someone would need and a tool or two that's platform agnostic. And the first one that comes to mind is a declarative templating for provisioning. I mean, if you're using AWS, you can obviously use CloudFormation, mm -hmm. uh, but 
I don't think CloudFormation works on Azure. I haven't tried it, uh, admittedly, definitely but I, it's definitely not meant to. Yeah. Uh, so something like HashiCorp's Terraform would be much more appropriate uh, mm -hmm. in this case because that can work across clouds. Yes, yes. Um, I don't have much to add to that. I think that's, that is the solution unless you're gonna do everything else with the following configuration management tools that we had talked about where you're using Ansible. Because Ansible technically could do a lot of what Very you're true. trying to do with Terraform. Now, I, I, I can't speak authority. I know Chef, I mean, Chef definitely, you guys have infrastructure deployment aspect. We, right? we have, we used to have Chef Metal, which was a provisioning Mm -hmm. uh, tool uh, that is going to be deprecated if it isn't okay. already. So that I, we generally steer people more toward Terraform in that case, okay. and that's what we use internally for a lot of our stuff as well. Okay. So we experimented with it, uh, but decided it, it's not our, our core competency. But configuration yeah. management certainly is. Gotcha. Gotcha. See, I learned you learn something every day, folks. <laughs> yeah. And every minute. As far as which configuration management tool you should use, you've got Chef, Ansible, Puppet, Salt Stack, uh, Desired State Configuration. Use the one that works best for your environment and that you best know how to use. Because again, if you're in the adrenaline of an emergency situation, you don't want to be learning a new tool or using a tool that you're not very familiar with. You want to be using the tools you're most familiar with so you can get your application, your software, whatever it is, up and running again as soon as possible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, object store, common DR patterns to have your copies of your objects. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've not done a lot of cross cloud replication and stuff like that. I mean, it's obviously when you, you know, you can, you can really easily sync files. Like you could have a store of files on say some servers and you can really easily use the, the AWS SDKs and stuff to, to easily sync files back and forth between two locations. Now I've not done a lot with between clouds, but there's there's a lot of really good solutions out there for certainly for syncing these kinds of things. So, uh, so I know. I mean, as you mentioned, a common disaster recovery pattern is to have copies of the same object in different object stores across providers. Uh, there is a tool I read about called Boto. And at least the old version of it, which was Boto, the new version is Boto 3. Uh, Boto would allow you to interface with both Amazon S3 and GCP cloud storage at the same time. Now I was checking out the new version, which they've moved to. It's not 100% clear to me whether it works with both object stores now or just AWS but it's at least a cool concept. And I'm betting there are a bunch of tools out there that allow you to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. You know, there's definitely, there seems to be whole businesses built on just managing, um, I know, I know S3 objects, like there's things like transmit and mm -hmm. uh, there's something like Cloudberry or something like that's on the, like on the Windows side. So yeah, there's a lot of tools out there for, for these types of things. Right. You can also get the, the literal, the, the thing that looks like a briefcase you can get from AWS to put all your data on. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then there's the truck size version of it. I remember they drove a truck onto the stage of AWS reInvent a few years ago. Snowmobile. Oh gosh. Snowball is the like the like the briefcase size thing. Right. And the snowmobile is like the That's like, right. Like shipping container. So yeah. Yeah. So if you if 
if you want and you have money, they can give you something physical uh, to put all your objects in or all the uh, whatever data you want on it, and then you can physically transport it to wherever you want to go. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice to have the have the stores synced automatically or when you upload that object have it automatically object upload to two different data stores as well yeah i was right the name of it was cloudberry but i think they've now renamed themselves msp360 which is a little weird but i think cloudberry is definitely much more memorable it is yeah (laughs) uh also and the next one if you have containers orchestrator tools i mean kubernetes is one of the most cloud agnostic out there. There's a few others. That one's by far the biggest, and we've done a whole episode on it. Uh, But a good point also is your container registry, if you're going to have multiple clouds, shouldn't be tied to one individual cloud. Uh, In fact, you might even want to have your containers in multiple container registries, because if you've got them Docker Hub, Docker Hub is platform agnostic, but if Docker Hub goes down, you you can't access those. So it depends, I think, on your level of paranoia and your le- level of riskier business if something is not available. Yeah, definitely. definitely. And it's hard to evaluate how, you know, how important is it and how much work is it going to be to kind of be able to build some failover to some of these things. Cool. And then there's some interesting patterns I also found in the Google Disaster Recovery Guide for Disaster Recovery. And maybe they're not as much patterns as things you have to consider. And the one, one of them is transferring the data to the recovery site. So let's say you've got, I don't even know how many Yoda bytes of data <laughs> or petabytes or even terabytes. I, if you don't already have them on the uh, recovery site already, if you're not maintaining two data stores like that, you need to transfer them there. And depending on your bandwidth, uh, that could be a very long process. Uh, there might, even if you're doing it straight from cloud provider to cloud provider, there still might be limits on how much you can transfer at one given time. Yes. Yeah. It could be a huge, huge issue. Terabytes of and petabytes and all these things. Yeah. Long, take a long time, you know, the uh, like what if you have direct connect with AWS, I think you're like you can do t- like that. I think the base level is like one gig and then mm-hmm. 10 gigs and maybe even 100 gig connections. But I mean, that's still going to take a long time on the 10 gig, gig connection. So, right. And again, if there's a disaster, uh, the bandwidth may not be working, <laughs> everything yeah. might be down in that case. Yeah, because typically you're gonna you're gonna bring a direct connect into say like. Mm-hmm some kind of a cross connect situation where you're in maybe like a colo or, um, you know, your own data center. Right. And you know, you know it's just, it's li- it's meant to be a private pipe between AWS and your cross connect system or whatever. So, yeah. Yep. Another one is you need to balance your infra- image configure configuration. So that's the image that say you would uh, spin up new virtual machines from uh, and the deployment speed. So when you're configuring a machine image for deploying new instances from, uh, there's an effect that your configuration will have on the speed of deployment. You can affect the speed of the deployment by the way you configure. So if you really minimally configure it, you know, just have the basic system libraries and such, uh, when an instance uses that, it's going to need more time because it's going to need to download and install all the dependencies uh, in order to use that minimal image. Now, if your machine image is highly configured, 
instances that use it will launch more quickly if all the dependencies are already baked into that image, mm -hmm. but you have to update the image more frequently. And it's really easy to forget to update, you know, one piece of software or one library in it if you don't have a really robust dependency management system. So this is going to have a direct correlation to that RTO that we talked about beforehand, uh, how fast you can recover from it. Yeah, definitely. Image consistency across hybrid environments. Packer, yeah, it, it, that was something I was thinking about when you were talking about that. Like, um, you know, if you're obviously seeking speed and, and you're, you know, you can use Packer to kind of like automate the update whenever new versions of software come out and you, you're basically updating your, um, your images like in, you know, on an, under an automated system. And this obviously, if you have then the images in your, you know, registry, then it makes it easier to uh, kind of replicate them and everything. So I think that's really smart. You could also manually convert and import existing images. What, what do you have to say related to that? Yeah, I mean, there's some in some cases where you can like you take an AMI or Amazon machine image and convert that using some tools into an image that could be used uh, in VMware. Say, mm -hmm. I don't know if that that if there is a tool that does that direct correlation, but there are ways to convert and import existing images. But again, this takes a long time. Mm -hmm. It's really easy for those to get out of sync. So it's a lot better when you're creating the image to just go ahead and create the identical machine images for multiple platforms at that time. And Packer yeah. is a great way to do it. Yeah, and it's funny because like uh, if in the VMware example, typically it's funny. I'm not, I'm not even sure I've ever taken like a machine that was just like an, created like a VXX. I'm sure you you can, but like I always did migrations from like a physical machine or from different machines while the machine is up and running and mm -hmm. it has the agent running and it kind of does the whole process of that at the same time. And obviously it's being done on a sand and all kinds of stuff. So it's really fast because it's on a sand and it's not really copying everything. It's like a lot of this is kind of like, you know, like sleight of hand copying. It's interesting how that stuff works, but yeah. So tiered, implementing tiered storage, most recent backups on the faster storage, slowly migrate older backups to cheaper, slower storage. So, you know, obviously on things like S3, you have, when you upload by default, typically a, a new folder is going to be configured or new S3 folder is what I'm going to call it. <laughs> it's going to go in there yeah. on their highest availability uh, tiering. Uh, but there's, you know, there's tiers that have less redundancy and, but obviously these are things that all you have to, you have to configure. And then if you have things that are in, uh, like like the slower storage, like you had said, that's in Glacier and things in Glacier. It used to be that it would be like, it could be days or hours for you to get things restored. Now that you can like kind of pay more money to get things restored quicker. Uh, but yeah, it's still definitely not right, right at your hands. Like if it was normally in a, uh, just a normal S3 bucket or something. And I'm sure, you know, the other cloud providers have their analogs to this. Right. Chances are, if I need a backup right away, I probably want the most recent backup. Mm -hmm. Maybe two or three if something went wrong uh, when I did the most recent one. But I usually, I mean, you can save money by, you know, my, my database... Uh, backup from three months ago, uh, I probably don't need easy access to it. When mm -hmm. I was at the University of Washington, we were still taking our data backups and putting them on tapes 
for Iron Mountain. We had an Iron Mountain delivery person who came every week to pick those up and put them in Iron Mountain. If we needed them, we'd request them from Iron Mountain and they'd bring them back. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was much better to have some recent backups available at any given time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the example I use, I think we've all done this at some point, those of us who've worked out with raw SQL, is I made a, a uh, update statement, I forgot the where. So, hmm. so it updated the entire table, which I didn't hmm. want to. And we were able to easily uh, go to a backup and restore it. But yeah, for older backups, I mean, some it's interesting to have them. And depending on your compliance requirements, you might be required to keep them for a certain amount of time. But you probably aren't going to need as fast uh, access to them as you would your more recent ones. It's kind of funny because uh, in kind of the systems administrator DevOps world, you know, there's not there. I, I've never worked in an environment where people were doing code review. And it's kind of funny because you mentioned this thing, <laughs> the SQL state, that'd be a good example where like code review and that would be helpful. You know, it's kind of funny. We just don't Absolutely. have that, that level of rigor and process and involved in a lot of our daily work. So. Are you a web developer that uses React or have thought about using React? Then you should check out our podcast, React Roundup. Every week, we have experts in React, talk to people from the React community, from Facebook, and from other places around the web about React. You can go find all of the discussions we've had over the last year or so at reactroundup.com. Another pattern, which is interesting, I'd like to dig into this more, you know, the idea of maintaining the same IP address for an application. Mm. Now, if it's in the same region in a cloud provider, uh, if you're able to use an elastic IP or something like that, that that's fairly easy. Or if you're able to use a load balancer uh, to balance between different availability zones, that's fairly easy. I don't know how you would do that with multiple clouds mm. unless you're yeah, I don't know how you would do that without you. I mean, you could take your DNS. If you have DNS, if you have a different DNS provider, you can point that to the new IP address. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure how, how yeah, you I think would the, do that. Yeah, I think your only solution is 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 to literally make sure that that you're doing all the resolution with DNS. And, you know, because there's no way to, you know, there's no way to move a whole block of IPs between providers really easily. So, you know, obviously what where, the, where you could get involved with that kind of thing is I imagine there's, bandwidth or I don't know, I don't know what to call it other than a, like a bandwidth cup. I'm trying to think of what the term would be. Sorry. Um, you probably could get that level of configuration with these like sophisticated cross connects and stuff like mm -hmm. that, where it's literally like a single IP and you're, you know, you're using a half dozen um, internet connections. Um, but then again, that would not be something that would fail over super easily. There might be some solution to this, but that I just don't know of, but it definitely would not be cheap or easy necessarily. I think okay. it'd be really expensive, but you can do a lot of things if, if you have enough money, but the, yeah. the question is, is it worth it? Uh, is yeah. it worth it to have the exact same IP address uh, in the event of a disaster recovery for some applications or some businesses? The answer might be yes. For many of them, the answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to some common mistakes people make in disaster recovery. And this one, this first one, I think ties into our general theme of DevOps pretty well is the idea, let's say the IT department is putting together the disaster recovery plan and they identify systems that they identify as critical, some systems that they, they identify as less critical, but 
let's say it's something the accounting department depends on and they can't do payroll unless that uh, system is uh, is active. Uh, so in the, you, you never want to be in a situation where you, you roll over to a, your disaster recovery environment and then suddenly you can't do payroll because there's a critical system that you didn't realize was critical. So it's really crucial to bring in people from across the business uh, when you're coming up with your disaster recovery. Because I mean, yes, we as IT people, we can, we can figure out which IT systems to us might be most important. But again, it's how people use those systems that defines how important they are to your business. And it makes me think of like, that it's important that you you document these kinds of like related critical systems in like your kind of like your playbooks or run books mm -hmm. where you say, okay, Hey, we're, if we fail over, when we fail over this system, here are other systems that are affected either by pulling information or putting the information into the system. Maybe there's some kind of manual configuration um, that that's involved. You know, obviously if you have some, there, there could be systems where like, you have like a fax machine or you have fax numbers or, you know, real like physical telecom infrastructure that's connected to things that, um, that are going to be much more difficult to move. And so you're going to have to really plan around those kinds of things too. Interdependencies and data flows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> model, you have to model the flow of information, which is, is not always the easiest thing to understand. Um, you know, you know, cause a lot of people understand certain aspects of an application, but maybe don't remember, you know, just don't remember everything that's connected to it. It's you know, so easy to forget. Yeah. It reminds me of that scene in the Phoenix project where they're getting a security review and the, their main security engineer uh, is, you know, is, is, convinced that the auditors are going to uh, fail them and do horrible things. But as the, the auditors bring in other people in the business, as they talk through the business workflows, uh, they're able to see, okay, this is where security vulnerability will be caught. This is where it won't be caught. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, there are data flows interdependencies that the security engineer had never considered. Yeah, there's business processes that can catch problems that maybe the IT systems, it's way more difficult for them to catch. Yeah, so definitely. Awesome. Uh, another common mistake, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is security consistency might be overlooked. Uh, particularly if you know there's been changes uh, to security groups in the main environment that aren't reflected back in the uh, disaster recovery environment. Uh, just it, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, when, when, you know, things like SSH keys and if you're trying to SSH into new in, into these environments, how are you managing right. access to all of these things um, and storing things? Because it's obviously if you're, um, you're using, I don't know, it's, it, that's just, a, that's, a, I'm not even going to go there. That's a big mm -hmm. morass of stuff that I don't want to talk touch. But <laughs> so, yeah. Disaster recovery as a service. Yeah, so, or D-R-A-A-S, which I want to be the name of my next World of Warcraft character, uh, if it's not already taken. Drass. Yep. <laughs> I'm not familiar with cloud endure disaster recovery. 
Is that, that's an Amazon product? Yeah, it's an AWS product. Uh, they say, we will handle your disaster recovery for you. Uh, the key thing to know is you still need to plan with them what mm -hmm. the critical systems are and what the disaster recovery will be. But yeah, they will handle that on AWS for, for you. If you need to you know, help, have, help you plan to fail over from one, available, uh, one region to another. And Azure service recovery is very similar. It, it's for Microsoft Azure. And like a lot of things Azure-wise, it, it's really geared toward Windows workloads. Um, yeah. But it's a way you can pay for a service that says it will take care of your disaster recovery for you. Yeah, that's really smart. It's, it, you know, I have to imagine that one of the best benefits of this is that they have a lot of rigor and they have a lot of, you know, kind of domain knowledge around this pro these processes. So by utilizing these services, you literally take a lot of the research and figuring it out kind of burden off of your, your organization. Um, and and kind of, I, I think that that's probably, I, I have not used something like that, but uh, it sounds really interesting, so. Cool, and then there's a couple of multi-cloud uh, ones that I found. One is, I think it's pronounced Zerto, it's Z-E-R-T-0, so I don't know if there's some lead speak pronunciation hmm. that I'm missing. Uh, and then there's ArcServe, which was formerly known as Zeta. And these are also multi-cloud uh, disaster recovery systems. So you're not locked into one vendor with them. Uh, they do seem very expensive. Um, mm. But if you want to offload that work, uh, have access to professionals for whom disaster recovery is probably their job, it might be worth it to you. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, ArcServe probably bought Zerto or whoever they did. it was. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so. Or they, they bought Zeta. Zeta. I think Zeta and Zerto are separate companies, but See, that's, quite I close. Not, I totally mixed those two up in my brain just because I was looking at the document. Cool. Yeah, because I've actually used ArcSurf backup products before, so I totally oh, gotcha. to get into the game of cloud recovery. And it literally on the front page, it's like on the above the fold, it talks about your RTOs, RPOs, and SLAs and all kinds of fun mm -hmm. stuff. So. All, all the, the, the acronym alphabet soup. Yeah, yeah. Cost savings and access to professionals. Yeah, I guess you already covered all that. So yeah, very good. I mean, I don't know if, if I have much else to add to that. So having right. that use them. With any cloud service, uh, it's also important to remember there might be unexpected costs. Uh, you need some, and it's pretty easy to monitor costs uh, on most clouds. You need to monitor the amount you're spending on it uh, mm -hmm. just in case it's you know, your uh migrating much more data than you expected to yeah uh, that's probably going to send your bill up yeah it's yeah it's you're going to have the initial data transfer costs and then depending on how you know so there's i know in, in the amazon world that, that you know so i was looking at the amazon disaster recovery uh pro document around this and you know they, they talk specifically around like pilot light which is kind of like trying to just it almost sounds like hey you're you're making sure your data is over on some secondary recovery site. Um, and then there's like warm standby solutions where that's like some version of your maybe most critical, you know, um, systems and then multi-site solution, which I think is, you know, like actually all of the different, um, your different systems. So you could literally end up in this situation where um, you have double the infrastructure costs if you're trying to, you know, have full, failover, so to speak, mm -hmm. so. Cool, well with that, uh, anything else on disaster recovery before we move to picks? 
no, I think I'm, I think I'm good. Like I've cool. covered that all. <laughs> well, my pick, I only have one pick this week and it's not a technology one, but my pick is wild mushrooms. Uh, here in Washington state, at least uh, all of the, so it, it's bad when we have forest fires and we had quite a bit of them last year, at least at the, the scale that they were last year and the amount of smoke we were getting in Seattle was choking all us out. But one of the good things that could come out of them is morels, uh, wild mushrooms, go a type of mild rush, mushroom, uh, grows really well in forests that has recently had a fire. So there are giant morels now that I find at my farmer's market. They're seriously as big as my hand. There's chanterelles. Uh, there's lobster mushrooms, which are giant. It's just, it's, it's, it's glorious mushroom season in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest right now. And I'm enjoying every, every moment of it. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we have liked having chicken of the sea. Mm -hmm. Is that what they are? Or something like that. Chicken of the forest. Chicken, of the, chicken of the woods. I think. Chicken of the something woods. Something. Chicken of the sea is tuna. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just awesome. silliness. Um, yeah, but we, yeah, my wife is a, and I and I are both big fans of mushrooms as well. So awesome pick. Um, the, you know, I haven't, you know, this is a little, uh, you know, I love, I love doing book picks. Uh, and this one is a little controversial. I think a lot of the things he talks about. Um, uh, so the book is the nine lies about work. This is by Marcus Buckingham. Uh, I've not read his books before, but I'd had some, I'd heard some quotes and heard some recommendations and, uh, I, I'm just going to highlight something from the book that I think is really fascinating to kind of illustrate why I think it's worth, a, worth reading. One of the things he talks about is that, um, you know, basically he was talking about the, the topic of performance reviews and he was talking about how, you know, like we're, we're trying to build these systems where people are giving feedback and, 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 you know, so if I'm a manager and I'm reviewing people on my team's performance, it, you know, we're going off some sense that I actually am any good at reviewing mm -hmm. people. What they found with research is that, that there's this trend to the way people give performance reviews, that there's like a pattern, like it's not really objective. And, and I think the short statement about this is that like, there is no reliable way to measure somebody like a knowledge worker's performance. Right. Um, and now, yeah, you could get into it and say, well, you know, like, how many features I add and this and that. And so, but those are still very subjective. Right. And um, so I think, you know, the big point there is that like, we have these really um, like broken ways that we think we can, we can solve all these problems without measuring people's performance and, and, but there's no real objective way. And a lot of the recommendations out of the book are like, you know, that a lot of this is like, you have to do it around, um, providing people with things that they care about and a mission they care about and all these types of things. And I, I just think this, the book is really interesting. It's going to challenge a lot of kind of core, you know, internal business management stuff. And, uh, I think it's really neat. So, and, you know, I, um, you know, I definitely, definitely would recommend it if anybody is interested or manages people or, you know, maybe, you know, started your own business or, you know, I don't know. I think, I think we need to change a lot of the ways that we're, um, you know, doing things. So sounds like a great uh, book to take on a flight. Yeah. I might take it on my next one. Yeah. Nine lies about work by Marcus Buckingham. 
and that's that's all the picks I got. Um, but uh, yeah, hope everybody makes it through uh, the summer without too many forest fires here out west, and not everybody gets too hot. You know, no more blackouts in New York, all kinds of good things like that. Yep, uh, stay, stay safe, everyone out there, no matter what hap- <laughs> what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week, everyone, and take care. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.